0: Good morning, happy Sabbath, and welcome to our time together, a pause in the middle of your Sabbath rest to delve into scripture and connect with God in new and exciting ways. We're going to have a conversation on one of the most interesting chapters in the book of Deuteronomy. I'm of course referring to if you studied your lesson to Deuteronomy chapter 4. But it's a difficult proposition to jump into scripture without asking God for his presence. So can I invite you to pray with me as we begin? God grant us the ability to see you. Grant us the capacity to be in you, and allow us the ability to work for you. We pray in your name. Amen. So you know that the world is populated. The history books are filled with phrases that elicit these visceral responses, phrases that go down in history and are now used interchangeably with the names of the people that uttered them. Let justice flow down like rivers. I mean, what would Martin Luther King's speech in Washington on that day where he had a dream be without that passage from Scripture? Or how about... There is nothing to fear but fear in itself, as President Roosevelt speaks to a community gripped by the perils of the Great Depression. Just win, baby. Al Davis promising a commitment to excellence in sports. One of the most famous phrases was uttered by a man as he was getting ready to move the frontier, that ever-expanding frontier that is human discovery. You know the phrase well. This is but one small step for man and a giant leap for mankind. And it is these phrases that connect us to this idea that history can be encapsulated in these moments, these moments that can be self-contained and can tell us something about who we are and where we've come from. Now, his name is probably not as recognizable as the litany of people that I have just quoted, but nonetheless, he gives us a phrase that is every bit as important, that is actually transcendental. As you begin to experience and ask questions of who you are. He also lived during the same time as Neil Armstrong, and his name, well, his name is Thomas Merton. Merton was a monk, a theologian, an activist, a pacifist, a poet, and a writer. And reflecting upon this idea of leaps for humankind a new discovery merton writes what can we gain by sailing to the moon if we are not able to cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves and martin understands that discovery history moments that encapsule instances that are foundational for the tales that we tell are important but they're uh, utterly meaningless if they are not accompanied by a clear idea of who you are. And so the question is asked. It's asked of leaders, of people, of churches, congregations. It's asked of Scripture itself. Who are we? Who are we as we relate to this God, this God who, as we've said before, experiences being in the midst of becoming? Who are we as we witness the power of the incarnation and as we hear the words that call the world into existence? Who are we as we respond and find purpose in a faith tradition that calls us to live out loud for Jesus? Who are we? I want you to have that question and let it rest and settle. Maybe push it to the back of your mind as we open our Bible to the book of Deuteronomy. I'll focus with you on the fourth chapter. We're going to look at two primary sections in this chapter. Now, structurally, this particular part is a sermon. Actually, everything that happens after chapter 3 in Deuteronomy could probably be best understood as a list of sermons, a series that is preached for a people seeking to inhabit a new land, a new space, a series that attempts to answer these existential questions, namely, who am I? And Moses steps up to the lectern and as he does he reminisces you know he has just spent three chapters recounting the history of Israel putting a new spin or perhaps a new way of understanding the stories that we share with each other this is his first major sermon, the first time that he actually preaches, the first statement that Moses will make. This is Moses' attempt at constructing a theology that seeks to make sense from history. Now, let me pause there for a moment. Let me pause and ask that as you are wondering and pondering the question that we begun with, who are you? You recognize that the answer to that question needs to be linked to your particular faith. But that faith matters only if it is applicable to the historical reality in which you live. In other words, My beliefs matter in as much as they affect the context that God has called me to inhabit. Theology isn't attempting to make sense about who God is. It is actually trying to gather all the propositions that we make about God and attempting to have those propositions fit into the reality of the world you are inhabiting. And this is why Jews write copious volumes on theology attempting to answer the problem of the Shoah or the Holocaust. This is why Luther tries to assuage the guilt and the fear that begins to creep into his heart as he wonders if he is saved. This is why James and Ellen And Bates and Andrews develop a systematic way of understanding and studying Scripture in order to alleviate the bitter taste of disappointment. Our theology is merely an attempt to try and make sense of the world we live in. And that's what Moses is trying to do. Now, how does he do that? Well, as we said before, we're going to focus primarily on two sections in the book. The first section comprises verses 4, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4. Now, I'm going to read that, and then I'm going to share one thought with you as you continue on pondering that question, who am I? says, Now, Israel, hear the decrees and the laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving to you. Do not add to what I command and do not subtract from it, but keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I give you. You saw, now you saw with your own eyes, what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor. But all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering, to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near to us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteousness?' And these decrees and laws as this body of laws that I set before you today. So Moses is attempting to open up his sermon by asking Israel to be obedient. And a lot of Christian conversations have hinged on this perceived conflict between the law and grace, right? If we read the New Testament, if we're serious about Paul, and we look at Paul through the lens of the Reformers and Luther's interpretation of Pauline theology, then we would have to say that what the law actually does is it places this heavy burden upon our shoulders. I want you to think about that as you answer this question. Is it possible that God, this God that has been present in Israel's history, has relieved and released them from Egypt, from the bonds of slavery, only to held them bondage to an ever heavier burden, namely the burden of the law? Does Yahweh liberate Israel in order to enslave them to the law with the constant fear that if they don't keep the law, all the promises that God has made will be for naught, or even worse, that disobedience leads to eternal damnation? Is that the question that Moses is attempting to wrestle with? Well, if you only look at Luther or at Paul, we might be tempted, just tempted to say yes. So the first principle that I want to share with you today is that the context alters the readings. One of our professors here at Loma Linda has this phrase that is particularly helpful as I wrestle with this notion. He says, circumstances alter cases. So the context alters the reading. And what Israel is trying to attempt to do here is explain its history. Not only its history of failure, but the notion that they have been called to be delivered. Notice that for this particular period in history, devoid of the ills of the church and the pre-modern age, the law isn't seen as a burden. Read with with me again verse 6. "...observe them talking about the laws carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations." So, if Luther were interpreting this particular passage, if Paul's context was serving to read Deuteronomy, they would say, no, the law, the law is not wisdom. It's a tutor that condemns. But in this particular context, the law is seen as something that allows other nations to look at Israel and say... What wise people, why? Well, scholars will tell you that amidst the henotheistic, and that simply means that the worldview that the Israelites lived in required the need for belief in many gods, and among all these tribal gods, Yahweh reigns supreme. Among this religious milieu, the biggest fear that everyone in the ancient Near East had was uncertainty. Now, life was perilous back then. And the biggest fear that people had was to, well, to without really wanting or knowing, in some way offend god that was their fear that without knowing or wanting they would offend god why well because what god required of them and what god would do for them was nebulous and it was actually ruled by the fickle cycles of rainfall and infant mortality and amidst this uncertain rule and this uncertain world, Yahweh speaks in and delivers certainty. He gives a covenant and commandments that we are called to obey in order to have assurance. So while for Paul and maybe for Luther later on, the law served as this constant reminder that we possess no assurance of salvation, a different context and a different cultural milieu looks at the same law and says, the law is there to provide assurance. Because by knowing what God wants, we can keep what God wants, and we know that God will remain faithful. Circumstances alter cases. And that's why, when it comes to interpreting scripture, when it comes to wrestling with the text, you ought to appropriate a hermeneutic that has three primary things. And as we've said before, hermeneutic is just a fancy word of saying interpretive framework. So when you're wrestling with scripture, three things you must possess. Number one, humility. Let us employ a hermeneutic of humility. Number two, let us employ a hermeneutic of suspicion. And what I mean by that is simply make sure that you're asking the questions about the cultural milieu. Because as we've seen, for the community in Deuteronomy, the law provides assurance. For Luther, it provided guilt and fear. But third, and probably most important, let us employ a hermeneutic of hope. In other words, let us recognize that God's ultimate desire is simply to know you and to be known by you. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near to us wherever we pray, whenever we pray for Him? So amidst changing cultural contexts and amidst shifting realities, the question then that I'm sure you're asking as you sit in your living room today is, Pastor, can we hold and plant our stake on firm and solid ground? Is there something that doesn't change Can we have the assurance that God is the same today, yesterday, and forever? Well, in this particular study, as you know, we seek to have you inhabit those spaces that cause uncomfortable tension, because we believe that it is in those spaces that we grow. But if you are still anxious about trying to define the place where you might find solid ground, let it be this. The Lord is our God is near whenever we pray. That idea, the idea of the closeness, the intimacy and the connection that God has with us hasn't changed. It was there for the for the people in Deuteronomy as they yearned to find assurance amidst a cultural milieu that preached uncertainty. It was there as Paul looks at God and says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's this close relationship of intimacy with Christ that gives Paul that assurance. It was there when Luther, when Luther looks around and nails 95 Thesis, that proclaim that human beings need no other intercessor before God because God is ultimately intimate. You know, the concept of God's closeness to us remains the same even as the cultural ways in which this closeness is expressed shift. So that's the first section. Now the second section, I want you to jump with me. I want you to jump with me very quickly to verse 32. Same chapter, chapter 4, verse 32. Now Moses continues his sermon. He has spent some time waxing eloquently about the travails of idolatry. And now he says, ask now about the former days long before your time from the day God created human beings on earth. Ask from one end of the heaven to the other, has anything great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation? By testings, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by a great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Notice that the author again is pushing them back to consider their history. Now, last week we spoke. We spoke about God's command for Israel to take care of the immigrants and the foreigners. It's funny, isn't it, that in this particular passage, God is inviting Israel to erupt into the land of Canaan, full of foreigners. And if you keep reading the story of Deuteronomy, like some of you commented and mentioned this week after our study, There seems to be a tension. On the one hand, Deuteronomy is saying, take care of the foreigners. On the other hand, God is commanding. Well, he's commanding holy war. So what is it? Which one is it? How do we inhabit the tension? Again, let me point out to you the first thing that we said circumstances alter cases context ought to alter our interpretation remember what we said the cultural milieu of israel was remember how we talked about the uncertainty that plagued the mind of people as they fret and worry quivering and quaking over the possibility of offending god unknowingly there was a prayer that comes out of the Semitic nations. It's a prayer that the Chaldeans used to pray. It was a prayer that was begging for the forgiveness to the unknown God. You see, they believed that there were so many gods in this world that it was impossible to please all of them. And that's what Israel is living and breathing in. There is this constant struggle, this fight. And you can see the fight time and time again throughout the Old Testament. Is God the true God? Or is he merely a deity that is both tribal and parochial? This is the fight. Which God is the true God? Which God is more powerful? Which God is right? Why? Because they deeply desire certainty. Richard Richard Niebuhr, that great theologian, says that what emerges out of the pages of Deuteronomy is this concept of radical monotheism. Because God is a God who intimately connects with his people, we now know that the whole world belongs to God. And thus, our options are no longer holy war, as was prescribed in Deuteronomy, or religious syncretism, as is sometimes advocated, In modern-day conversations. For there is a third option. Everything belongs to God. The Adventist Church and all the other myriad Christian denominations that exist, they belong to God. All other faith traditions, the people, the economic resources, nature, animals, fawn, and fowl, they all belong to God. And so, so we come back to the question with which we started, as you begin to ask yourself, what place is God playing? And what space is he inhabiting as you consider who you are? Could it be possible could it be possible that radical monotheism calls us not only to be humble and to understand that context in shapes and shifts our interpretations, but in the face of this intimate God, it all belongs to him. And so you can see your enemies, those with whom you disagree, not for who they are, but for what stands behind them. That same Thomas Merton the one that talked about the bridge and the gap, this gulf that exists to know ourselves, says, may you see behind everyone you encounter the presence of the God who owns it all. I wonder if the best way that we can answer the question, who am I, is simply, I am an image barrier. Barrier of Christ. And if you are called to bear that image, could it be possible now that God is asking you to find his image, that divine imprint in those with whom you connect. Both those who are called to covenant and those who still dwell in Canaan. Joey, Deuteronomy 4, radical monotheism this idea of uncertainty the covenant and the law so much and we were talking just before we came on camera about how blessed we are when we get to explore a book like we're doing this trimester because it it'll it forces us kind of to dig deeper and mine some things that uh, sometimes our topical studies, beautiful as they are, don't allow us to do.
1: Yeah, I've loved this journey through Deuteronomy, just like I loved our journey through Isaiah when we did the book of Isaiah. It's, it's, it's something powerful about going deep into uh, the Word of God that just that is such a blessing. And um, I, I really enjoyed that that quote that you began with from Thomas Merton. I want to read it again. What can we gain by sailing to the moon if we are not able to cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves? Wow, so powerful that maybe the greatest journeys we take are not the ones we do out in the world, but the ones we take within mm. ourselves.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think Martin, um, again, because he is, and I think this is the thing that we keep coming back to this week. Because of the particular context that merton is is living in merton takes a a different kind uh, of view of human nature Mm. so we typically have um as protestants a very augustinian view of human nature Mm. right we possess original sin and then we add in the idea of uh calvin's notion of total depravity of human beings and so our idea of human nature is that we're irredeemably and irreparably broken Mm. And I think that's helpful in some cases. Merton doesn't do that, though. Merton Mm. looks at human beings and takes a kinder view of human nature Mm. uh, because he believes in this this theology of the Imago Dei, right? We are created in the image of God, and so we are image bearers. And as image bearers, uh, the, the real journey is to find that presence, as we've talked about before, of God in within yourself mm. um, and kind of God awakening
1: uh,
0: his call for your life within yourself.
1: Yeah. And talk about holding two ideas that seem to be opposites intention and still embracing both of them. But I do think there is a beauty in accepting both the idea that we are broken inside and at least for ourselves, recognizing that brokenness is a helpful step towards healing mm-hmm. but at the same time if we think of other people as irredeemably broken it does create a lot of suspicion mm-hmm. and it makes it very difficult to interact with other people because then you're thinking well they're just broken they're 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 ugly and sinful on the inside no matter what they're showing on the outside mm-hmm. they're so broken and ugly on the inside how could I ever trust mm-hmm. them right and so that that does create a a really impossible type of situation for us to be able to love someone.
0: Yeah, Joey, that's such a great point, right? Because grace is tension. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, one of these beautiful little uh, cliff note leadership principles that we always use is uh, take responsibility for your failures, Mm -hmm. give credit for your victories, Mm -hmm. So when it, when it comes to us and, and, and places where uh, our systems fail, we take responsibility. When, it's t- when we've been successful, we've done so because mm-hmm. there's other people around. And I think that is a very grace-oriented principle. Yeah. Maybe then when it comes to ourselves, um, the, the principle that can kind of hold these ideas in tension is give yourself a break. You're mm-hmm. irreparably broken. Yeah. Give others... A break they are image bearers of God Hmm. and so it's it's I think this idea of holding Hmm. these two things in tension in order to be more grace-filled yeah that's so true you know and often we kind of do the
1: opposite don't we Mm -hmm. like instead of giving other people grace we do give ourselves grace in that we measure ourselves by our own intentions but for other people's we we tend to measure them by their actions Mm -hmm. right And then attribute negative intentions or ugly intentions to them. Whereas for ourselves, you know, if I'm late to a meeting, it's, you know, it's because it's not because I wanted to be late or because I'm flawed or I'm always late. It's, you know, there was traffic, there was all these other things. Um, If somebody else is late, then it's, they were probably just got, Mm. you know, stayed up late last night and they were watching Netflix until too long. And that's why they were late and make these assumptions about other people. Absolutely,
0: Yeah. Um, And I think that that carries on to the way we read Scripture Mm -hmm. because we're always with either or. Uh, We got a lot of people commenting, and I think rightly so, Mm. about our conversation last week. It's clear in the Bible that... Deuteronomy is calling us to care for the alien and the foreigner. It's also clear that later on, particularly as you talk about baal and the dangers of intermingling with people that have a different religion, that is used for the basis of holy war. And so you kind of have these two ideas that you can't marry. Um, In much the same way that we say, well, we're not not Old Testament people anymore, like Marcion said. We're New Testament people, and so we're not under the law, we're under grace. Much like Luther said, right? And so it seems to me that instead of trying to figure these things out, it would do us well to just admit that tension is going to exist, Mm. and then look at how this very same thing that gave... Luther, a lot of uncertainty, i.e., what is my standing before God? Mm -hmm. In Deuteronomy, gives the people certainty and security because they're parting from a paradigm that says, we don't even know what God wants, and that is incredibly, incredibly Mm anxiety-creating. It's it's creating a lot of fear in us. And so God says, okay, for you, Mm -hmm. I am going to tell you in 613 laws, what I actually need. (laughs) And for Luther, he says, I am going to give you Jesus. Mm. And rather than say this one's more valid than the other, I think the call is how do we understand what the context of someone Mm. is because ultimately theology, which is all that we're doing, is attempting to make sense Mm. of our historical reality.
1: Wow, that's so powerful that the idea that the context does shift our interpretation and context does shift the, the way that God applies his principles in that case. In a context, like you said, where people are ruled by uncertainty, don't know how to relate to gods, right? Because they thought there were many gods. Um, in, in that kind of context, because the gods are fickle, the gods don't tell you exactly what they want, the gods keep changing their minds, um, in that kind of context, what was really grace-oriented and, and um, helpful was to be clear. It kind of reminds me of um, Kim Scott. She's not a theologian. She's a business person. <laughs> right. But she, she says the phrase, clear is kind, right? And if you've ever had a boss that's fickle, mm-hmm. you know that that is so true, that clear is kind. That someone who defines clearly what they want and what they expect that is a kindness to most people. Mm-hmm. Clear is kind, and God does seem to do that with His laws for His people. He defines very clearly: if you do this and this and this, you will be blessed, you will prosper, you will you will obtain the land that I am giving you. He's very clear, and in this that context, clear was kind, whereas in Paul's context, um, it was more about understanding what was the point behind all those mm-hmm. laws. What was the, what were the principles that drove that law? And, and that, was, that was what was kind in his context.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so the idea that um, context and circumstances alter cases or context uh, allows for new interpretive realities mm-hmm. sounds different. It sounds shocking. It might sound uh, distressing to some of our viewers out there. But, Joey, isn't that traditional Adventism? The study this week was, I think, aptly entitled Present Truth. Mm -hmm. And isn't that kind of one of the bedrocks of Adventist interpretation of Scripture, the idea that God speaks to us differently, not because he changes, Mm -hmm. but because we change. And uh, and God isn't this wooden... uh, idol made of stone um, that that is immutable god is relational and so as we need different things from us a god who's being and becoming becomes those things for us yeah
1: this idea of progressive revelation mm-hmm. right the fact that that actually was woven into our statement of beliefs when we finally decided to put them down which you know, not a lot. Of, some people are surprised when they hear that we operated without a, an official statement of beliefs for decades, right? Until we finally put one an unofficial one down in I think it was like 1932, and then it became finally official in the 1980s. But when when it became official, they they did have that prelude that said that this is our current snapshot of what we think God is saying mm-hmm. about Himself, or what the Bible says about God. But we leave it open to the leading of the Holy Spirit because we understand that God will guide us into a clearer understanding of this truth. Mm-hmm. So this idea that God does continue to reveal more about himself, not because, like you said, not because he changes, but because our understanding of him grows and we grow and our context changes. So he applies
0: it in different ways. Yeah. And that is, like you said, that is traditional Adventism. So I know, for example, we as a body, 21 million members uh, that inhabit the spectrum uh, from progressive to conservative and everything that's in the middle of that, we have these 20 fundamental beliefs that I think we can all subscribe to with the addendum based on the Graybill preamble, which yeah. is what you were mentioning, Ron Graybill, that came and said, this is what we believe today, mm-hmm. but we are open to the leading of the Spirit. And if that is applicable to a central tenet of Protestant theology, mm-hmm. like grace versus law, which, is, which was a way bigger deal than women's ordination or any other issue that we might mm-hmm. have today in the church, mm-hmm. That You see that in real time being lived out Mm, in the pages of Scripture, right? Uh, Is it Paul or is it Deuteronomy? Mm. Well, it's both if you look at their context. I think that solves pretty much every interpretive issue that the Seventh-day Adventist Church struggles with Mm. because we're being asked to look at ourselves and our context Mm. and then to try and make sense of that by asking God to speak as He has spoken, um, sometimes through prophets, and others, uh, like the Book of Hebrews says, through a son.
1: Yeah. So not just take woodenly the applications from the past, but but to be open to how the Holy Spirit is leading us to apply those principles in the present mm-hmm. is 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 what's crucial for us. Wow. Yeah. I. I. I I, as you were talking, I was wondering, I was thinking to myself, would Moses take exception to Paul and how Paul perceived his law? You know, would Moses be like, no, the law is beautiful. Why Why are you talking about it as a burden, as as, as this weight around your neck? I'm so glad that God gave us the law. And then, I, I'm you know, if I were to conjecture, Paul would be like, No, but you haven't lived for for (laughs) centuries, for millennia with this law that's grown and all the applications and all the the minute details and everything is micromanaged and it is becoming this weight around my shoulders. Um, It would be interesting to have that conversation between Moses
0: and Paul. Yeah, and and the fact that, at least for Moses and Paul, Jesus changes it all. So it's not the law. Now Now you know what God desires of you because you've seen him live it out in his son, mm-hmm. uh, flesh and blood, and so now we have certainty, but it's a different type of certainty. Yeah. And so wow. I, I think, and I know, I know, and I am so sensitive to the fact that one of the big problems with the postmodern and metamodern, don't worry, those, those terms are interchangeable sometimes, Uh, age, is that there is kind of this idea of relativism that we're all kind of nervous with because, Mm -hmm. hey, if everything's relative, if everything's true, then nothing is true. And so I I understand how some people find that deeply, deeply distressing. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess I would say, is it possible that God is asking you to trust the intimacy Because that remains the same. Mm. Um, The the contextual realities and the applications of the pericopes or the passages may change, Mm. but the desire for intimacy remains the same. And so the question is, how is God attempting to connect with me? How is God attempting to have me navigate and discover myself here and now?
1: Yes, that's so true. What... What I noticed as we were reading through uh, Deuteronomy 4 is that God uses that same word that is used in Genesis 2 Mm -hmm. to describe the cleaving, Mm -hmm. and to use the King James Version word, the cleaving of man to wife to describe the relationship that he wants to have with humans. I mean, that is like the, the, when we think of the most intimate human relationship, that is the, the, the relationship between man and wife, right? So this this idea of them cleaving together god is that that is like you said that is the driving force behind the message of of scripture and i think that is one of the beautiful aspects of the bible that adventism highlights is this idea of the god who comes right mm-hmm. the god who comes towards us who is constantly trying to draw near to us that's the whole purpose of the sanctuary mm-hmm. that Build them, let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell Mm -hmm. among them. And that is the whole beauty of the incarnation. God actually coming to physically be with us in human flesh. God is the God who wants and longs to be close to us. And like you said, as long as we keep that focus, the focus of God wanting you to be known and also to know us as being the driving force, it can help us navigate some of these tensions as we hold onto these t- uh, seemingly opposite tensions.
0: Right. And, uh, Joey, I think that's so well said. You you have this idea of God coming to you and so the question is how does God come? Mm-hmm. What is in God's coming? What does that look like? What mm-hmm. does it always look like? And what what you find from Genesis all the way to Revelation is that God's coming looks like um a baby. It looks mm. like a people that are enslaved. It looks like uh, the youngest brother of mm. all uh, of, uh, of, of Jesse's family. It looks like kind of the downtrodden and the Dawn in the downcast. And so, mm. while functionally the idea of holy war in this context makes sense, mm. we can say today we actually uphold the idea of taking care of those that are less fortunate, because that's how God comes. And so our interpretive principle is this idea of God coming. And looking at the whole breadth of Scripture, Mm -hmm. there is no tension as to how God comes. God always comes in the Mm -hmm. form of the downtrodden. And so it's not that we are helping them because it is Our responsibility as followers of Yahweh it is that we're helping them because those who are coming are Yahweh Hmm. and this is this idea again that Merton's trying to push us towards right this idea of the Imago Dei the the notion that when it comes to other people cut them a break Mm. because they they are bearers of the image
1: of God Wow that God always draws near but how he draws near is looks different in each context because the downtrodden look different in every context that it that changes wow that is so so profound i hope all of you got this this idea that god god draws near in different contexts but it looks different in different contexts because the 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 downtrodden are different in every context and that that makes me think you know in we're talking about different contexts that are separated by millennia Mm -hmm. right thousands of years Is it possible, though, for there to be different contexts existing at the same time period? You know, one one thing that um, we've we've realized is that change continues to speed up. And as change speeds up, it creates what we're talking about as generations, right? There's various generations. And even when you're living in the same place in the same time period, um, when you have change changing so rapidly, during people's formative years, it seems to create different generations, different contexts with different mindsets. So is it possible that God draws
0: near differently to different generations? What would you say? I would say that's absolutely true, right? As you've seen this moving and the speeding up as I think you've described it so, so perfectly of how the world and the Knowledge frameworks of people and in the cultural context of people are both changing and they're becoming more integrated right mm-hmm. before we used to think of, About the first world uh, and the second world and then the third world and there were some markers that were very different yeah. That you could that you could actually see from someone living in the first world uh, and then in, in Soviet and uh, communist countries and then in the developing world, but now as everything's become more integrated those differences melt away and now the differences that you see emerging are not differences that have to do with your culture per se but they're differences that you have to do with that have to do with your age and the way you you approach technology if you're a digital native versus not and how i probably as a as a digital I'm not really a digital native, I'm kind of this bridge generation, but my, our kids as digital natives probably have more in common with people living in the developing world that are also digital natives than they have with us. And so the way that God is going to draw near to them is going to look similar in that context, but different in, in our context. And so I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how, first off, how is God drawing near and secondly, how open we are mm. to traversing that space that is really mm. uncomfortable as God is looking and moving in different ways in contexts all around us. And are we open and mature enough to allow those differences to play out, not only in our homes, mm. but in our churches? Yeah. Uh, because that's, I think, where where we have where we have the most the most issues. We have these communities that are uh, that are closed communities, and that have been in and hold these traditions uh, in in this identity that is key to to our existence as as a church. Mm. But then you have the realization that God is moving in different ways as well, wow.
1: That's so powerful. So as parents, so parents as parents, we have to almost think of ourselves as missionaries, mm-hmm. right? um and I say missionaries in the best sense of the word not missionaries who go and try to change the culture to, and make um everyone conform to my own culture but missionaries who are who enter a different culture than our own seek to understand it and also draw help god draw near it within that context within that culture mm-hmm. in a in a in a language in a methodology that fits um people living in that context which is our children yeah Wow. Yeah,
0: and our and our fellow, fellow church members that might be older, might be younger. And mm-hmm. so people say, well, how is that possible to do? And again, I think Thomas Merton is extremely wow. helpful. Uh, because as we were l- reading in the second part of Deuteronomy, Merton says, I'm not looking at you, Joey-O. I'm looking at Christ standing behind you. Hmm. Because you are created in the image of yeah. that God. Yeah. Yes. And so it's not... It's not, I don't see Joey O with all of Joey O's idiosyncrasies Mm. and Joey O's cultural context and Mm. Joey O trying to figure out how God is working out in your life. I actually am looking at Christ behind you. Mm. And I hope that you are looking at Christ behind me. And if we do that, I think we can navigate these differences in a way that is kingdom restoring and life-giving.
1: Wow. So talking about holding paradoxes in, in, in tension, we are both broken, but also created in the image of God. Mm-hmm. We are uh, both natives to our own cultures, but also missionaries to other people's mm-hmm. cultures. This idea that that we are both, and that that is what God has called us to be. Mm.
0: Well, friends, I've had a blast. I can't believe that our time is up. But this idea, I hope you find it challenging. I know I've been challenged. Joey, this, this, this notion of inhabiting that tension is something mm. that I think we will have to do forever this side of paradise. Mm. But I think it's, it's a healthy way of experiencing faith. So can you close us out in prayer as you typically do? Yes.
1: Good and gracious God, we want to thank you so much for being a God who draws near. No matter how hard we've pushed you away in the past, you continue to make efforts to draw near. Drawing near, not just in your own way, but drawing near in a way that we understand and that we can perceive in our own context. You adapt, you incarnate yourself to our context. And so as we seek to do that for our children, for our neighbors, for people around the world, We ask that you give us that same willingness to adapt, to incarnate, put flesh on the gospel message
0: is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. May the incarnational God make you malleable. May he give you certainty. May he be your firm foundation even as you change to reflect him more meaningfully. May God bless you. We'll see you next week you